Many great stories as there are of what Jesus did after he came back from the dead. Probably my favorite one is in Luke chapter 24. And I want to take you there today. It's the story of two disciples that are walking away from Jerusalem on a place that we now call the Emmaus Road. Uh, It's an awesome story. It's got drama. It's got suspense. It's got kind of a cool plot twist near the end. Um, And it's also got, we're not talking about emotion again this Sunday like we have been, but I think about Jesus on Easter Sunday, and when I think about him on Easter Sunday, I just think about joy. I think about how happy and how, honestly, how much fun Jesus seemed to be having all day this this day he came back from from the dead. And honestly, when he's he's talking to these guys on the Emmaus Road, he's almost a little bit mischievous, don't you think? We'll see. Um, Jesus is just in a really good mood. Um, let's go ahead and, and just look at this passage, maybe um, from a different angle. I've probably preached to you on it three times before, but there's more here. So let's go to verse 13 of Luke 24. That very day, and this is Easter Sunday, the original Easter Sunday, two of them, two of Jesus' disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood there looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer those things and enter enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. While he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Some of you know that before I became a pastor, I had a very short career as an electrical engineer. And in a lot of ways, um, I still think like an engineer. In fact, it never really goes away. I think actually some people are born with it. Um, When I was a kid, 
maybe like elementary or junior high in math class, I can remember almost all the other kids hated word problems. Anyone hate word problems? You know, they would like, it, it, the, the, the math on the paper, you know, you could do algebra on the paper, that was okay. But you know what? I loved word problems. Whenever there'd be a word problem, I would be excited. It was okay just doing the math and seeing the numbers. But what really got me excited was when I got a problem like this. You know, Sally has nine apples. Jason has two apples. And if someone gives each of them the same number of apples, how many additional apples would they have to give until Sally would have exactly twice as many apples as Jason? That's the kind of thing that really made my, my juices flow. You know, apples. And because, <laughs> apple juice. No, because, because that's what made math come alive. That's what made math real, you know, in the real world. Oh, and by the way, if, you, if you've already figured out that the answer to that problem is five, then you are a total nerd like I was, and you are on your way to an interesting future. Then I got to high school physics, and it was pretty cool, you know, because I was a math nerd, so it was cool to do problems with, on paper with cosines and vectors and acceleration and all that stuff, but what really made me excited is when I got a problem where the, where the baseball bat struck the ball at a 38-degree angle, headed toward a six-foot wall, 342 feet away, and what minimum velocity did the ball have to have leaving the bat in order to make it over the fence? That brought it into the real world. That was cool. I just ate that up. By the way, the answer to that problem <laughs> cannot be determined because they didn't tell you how high the pitch was, okay? <laughs> I also didn't feel like working it out. But then in college, it got even better because instead of apples and baseballs, now it was stuff that you couldn't even see. And in electrical communications class, we had to learn bizarre math concepts like phasers and Fourier transforms and imaginary numbers, you know. But the cool thing was that if all this stuff was real, right? Well, imaginary numbers aren't real, but they're important, okay? <laughs> But if all the other stuff was real, and if all this theory and all this math really made sense, if that was true, then that meant that I could solder a bunch of resistors and capacitors and diodes and transistors together on a circuit board, and that would enable me to hear the voice of someone talking into a microphone 50 miles away by radio waves. And lo and behold, it works. All of this math and all this theory was real, and it was true, and it made a difference in the real world. Now, why am I telling you all this? Well, when I went to seminary years later, I knew a lot of guys who were really into theology. And I was too. It was hard not to be into theology because there was so much truth. When you go to seminary, you're, it's just a fire hose of truth coming at you. There's so much to learn. The study of God and God's truth is an inexhaustible discipline. You can study it forever. There's so much. There's theology proper, the study of God. There's theological anthropology, the study of man. There's homardiology, the study of sin. There's soteriology, the study of salvation. There's Christology. You probably know what that is. There's pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. There's ecclesiology, the study of the church, and, and many more of these ologies. And you can keep going and going and, and get deeper and deeper and never get to the bottom of all this knowledge. And that's a good thing. In fact, I think in heaven... That's one of the things we'll be doing is digger, digging deeper and deeper into the truth of God forever and ever and never getting to the bottom. But you know what? It is possible to know a lot about theology, a lot about God, a lot about the study of God and still not know God personally and still not have a personal relationship with Him. And it's possible to know an awful lot about the theory that we find in God's Word, the teaching that we find in God's Word, and then not really do any engineering with it, you know, not really put it into practice. 
there are brilliant men and women who are experts on a lot of the technical details of theology and scripture and who have even written books that seminary students use as references. And yet, tragically, for a lot of these people, their lives have not been impacted by the truth of what they have so exhaustively studied because they are content with knowledge and theory and their theology never made it off the page. It never made it into the real world and it never made it into their lives. One of the things, now there are a lot of things that happen on the Emmaus Road, but one of the things that happens on the Emmaus Road is that Jesus does a little bit of Bible engineering here. He does what we sometimes call applied theology. What he does is he connects some some biblical theological dots for these two men, but he doesn't stop there. He fills their minds with knowledge, but he also sets their hearts on fire. He brings that truth into the real world in such a way that these men will never be the same once it hits them because truth is supposed to make a difference. Can I say that again? Truth is supposed to make a difference, and here it does. I want you to think about where these men are at the beginning of the story. They're they're depressed. They're defeated. They're they're disillusioned. They're, They're maybe a little bit angry. Notice how when this this stranger kind of sneaks up behind them and he asks them to tell him the story of the last few days, you notice what they do? They just stop. They were walking and they just stop. And they just look at the ground. They're just totally dejected. They had dared to hope that this, this prophet, this guy Jesus of Nazareth, they had dared to hope that he was the one, that he was their redeemer, that he was the savior, that he was the Messiah. But obviously they were mistaken. And this was such a crushing blow because if, if this, this, this miracle-working, child-welcoming, poor-person-loving, brilliant teaching person, this Jesus, if this was not the Messiah, then who was? Right? And, and all this talk, they, hear, they heard the talk about the empty tomb. They mentioned that to the stranger here. But to them, you know what? It's probably just, they think it's just wishful thinking. They think it's just a bunch of hurt and confused people back in Jerusalem who are now grasping at straws because they can't say goodbye to this dream. And it's probably just easier for them, for these two guys to get away from it all, to leave Jerusalem and go wherever they can than to hang around and just watch it all fall apart and and start to get embarrassing after a while. So, have you ever been there? Have you ever been where these two guys are at the beginning of this account? Have you ever gotten to the point where you really let yourself get excited about something? Or maybe about someone but then the rug got pulled out from under you, and it was too good to be true after all, and, and now what you want to do is you just want to take a vacation from hope, right, because it hurts too much. That's where they are. Jesus sees this problem, and he knows what these two guys need to get their faith back on track. First of all, they're going to need a little theology lesson. They need some truth. They need to understand the Bible better. But in addition, they're going to need something more because we see in verse 25, not only are they foolish, he calls them foolish ones. Now, Jesus is not being mean to them. Okay, fool in the Old Testament, that word often means, that has some moral connotations and it means something very bad about a person. But fool in this instance just means you're not thinking straight. Say, look, guys, you're you're not thinking this through. 
But then he says they're also slow of heart, which means there's something in them that just won't believe. Or maybe they're afraid to believe, and and so they need something that goes beyond mere information. This truth needs to not just get into their brains, but it needs to become personal to them. It needs to break through into their experience somehow. And so Jesus, what he does is he starts out by preaching a sermon that I will tell you every pastor in the world wishes that we were here, there to hear that sermon. As the living word of God explained the written word of God and how it was all about him. I mean, if I could not take notes fast enough if, if I were one of those two guys. And remember, to, to these guys, Jesus is, he's not Jesus. They don't know who he is. He's just a friendly stranger at this point. They have no idea who he is, but this stranger starts going through the Old Testament with them. What we call the Old Testament, what they would have called the Scriptures. And he starts doing it book by book, story by story. And we don't know all, unfortunately, we don't know all of what he said, but, but here is a likely excerpt. Okay, let's put ourselves in their shoes and their sandals, and, and we'll see what Jesus maybe said to them at this time. And maybe I'll put it in the vernacular of the way that we might talk about it. But Jesus might have said something like, well, so you, you think this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, was maybe the Messiah. Is that what you're telling me? Okay. Well, then let's, let's look at the, at the Scriptures and let's check that out. So if, if maybe he was the Messiah, then that means that in Genesis 3, when sin has entered the world and, and Adam and Eve are kind of getting dressed down by God after they sin, and God tells Eve that one of her offspring will one day crush the serpent's head and get wounded in the process, that was Jesus. When Abraham offered his son Isaac as a sacrifice to God in Genesis 22, but was stopped at the last minute and provided with a ram caught in the thicket as a substitute, that was Jesus. When the Israelites were told to sacrifice a Passover lamb to save their children there in Egypt from the angel of death, that was Jesus. When Moses lifted up a serpent on a brass pole in the book of Numbers and told the sinful snake-bitten Israelites that looking upon that serpent would save their lives, That was Jesus. When David cried out in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you heard those words anywhere lately? That was Jesus. When Isaiah talked about a suffering servant who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, that was Jesus. Don't you see? The real Messiah was always going to be a man of suffering. Because the only way that he could forgive sin was to die for it. That was the only way to conquer sin. And we rightly emphasize the suffering part today because we realize that was the big stumbling block for most of the people back then. That people just could not get their minds and their hearts around the idea of a suffering king. And so Jesus talked about all those passages probably, but he didn't stop there. It says he went through all the scriptures And he reminds them that suffering is not the end of the story, but the Messiah will then, as it says here, enter into his glory. Well, what does that look like? It looks like resurrection. It looks like resurrection. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul gives us that just that, that seminal description of the gospel, that's real simple, when he says, Christ died, he was buried, he rose on the third day. He doesn't just say he rose on the third day. Paul says he rose on the third day according to the scriptures. And so maybe this stranger could have gone on a little bit more. Maybe he could have said, you know how in Psalm 16, when David writes, 
You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor let your Holy One see decay. That was Jesus. You know how in Hosea when it says, on the second day He will revive us, and on the third day He will raise us up? That was Jesus. You know how after the servant is crushed for our iniquities and wounded for our transgressions, that Isaiah later says in that same chapter that after his soul makes an offering for guilt, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. That was Jesus. You know how earlier in Isaiah chapter 25, it says that on this mountain, God will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe tears away from all faces. That was Jesus. You see, if the prophets are right, if the prophets got it right, and if the Psalms got it right, and if all, the, if all the theory works out and all the math is correct, if all the teaching of the Old Testament makes sense, if the theology was right and it's correct, if what it says in this book that God gave us actually represents reality, represents truth, then the practical, real-world upshot of that is that there's no way this Jesus of Nazareth guy is going to be staying in the ground. So why are you guys so surprised by an empty tomb? And why are you standing here sulking as if death was going to get the last word? Now, Jesus probably didn't say those words, but that's because he didn't have to, because he was going to end his sermon another way. With these two gentlemen whose, whose hearts were now beginning to warm up and catch on, they invited him to stay the night with them in the local hotel there in Emmaus, and he agreed. But then it says that he, uh, they went to eat dinner, and he took bread, and he broke it. And I don't know what it was about Jesus. I don't know if these guys maybe were at the feeding of the 5,000 and something kind of rang a bell or what happens. But apparently when Jesus breaks bread, he just gives himself away. And so, and so all of a sudden, he breaks the bread, gives it to them, and all of a sudden the lights go on all the way. And then this man disappears from their eye, before their eyes. And so the two guys look at each other with their mouths hanging open and their eyes wide, and they say, that was Jesus. That was him. And it's at this moment when Jesus breaks the bread in their presence that all of the theory, all the theology, all the knowledge, all the truth that they've been learning on the journey actually breaks through in their experience. It's all real. It's all true. It all goes together, and it all makes a difference. Why didn't we see it before? So let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a that was Jesus moment in your life? Have you ever had a time when, when the truth finally hits you in a personal way that you know is for you? Has Jesus ever walked off the pages of the Bible and into your life? That's an important question. It needs to happen if you're really going to know him. Happened to me when I was nine years old. I've told the story here before. I was lying awake in my bed one night staring at the ceiling. I had a lot of theology in me at the time, a lot of theory for a nine-year-old. I had been, uh, you know, memorizing Bible verses, and I won me lots of awards, and so I had some scripture in me. And you know what? It wasn't that Jesus suddenly kind of walked into the room and was there with me. It was more like I suddenly realized somehow that he had been there all along in the room. 
and that all that the Bible stuff that I had learned was for the real world, that was real, that God was real, that the cross was real, that my sin was real, and that God wanted me to have a talk with him about that stuff like right now. And so I did. You know what? That was Jesus. That was Jesus. Last week you heard the testimony of a young man who said he had always known about God but that he never knew God personally, that is, until God got his attention through a cancer diagnosis. Brought some people into his life to shake up his self-confidence and then met him the next day in a powerful way and sealed the truth of the gospel into his heart. You know what? That was Jesus. The same way. Many of you that are here right now this morning could testify to other times, maybe when you first came to Christ or probably also a lot of other times after you first came to Christ, that Jesus jumped off the pages of this book and jumped into your life and some truth about Jesus came alive to you. Maybe it was his ability to heal. Maybe it was his love for lost people and his desire for you to reach out to your friends. Maybe it was his call for you to serve him with your life. Maybe it was his, his mercy toward those who try and fail because you had tried and failed and you needed that mercy. Maybe it was his command to forgive someone who had wronged you. Maybe it was his victory over your loved one's death. You know what? This is all biblical truth that you can know with your mind. But as you continue to follow Jesus and you spend time in his word, what happens is, is, is one by one, these truths just come off the page. They come home to you, not as dry academic concepts like you knew them, but as undeniable experiential reality as the Holy Spirit takes what the Holy Spirit wrote in this book about Jesus and makes it real in your life. Amen. It's all real. Right. And it all makes a difference. One of those examples that I just gave is one that I've seen over and over again, and that's when people have to deal with the death of a loved one. And many of you have been through that this year. Because let's face it, we're all, we're all helpless in the face of death, aren't we? Like Isaiah said, it, it, it hangs over us like a shroud. We cannot ultimately stop it from happening, and we can't turn back the clock and keep it from happening, or say things we wish we could have said before it happened. We just can't do those things. And so when it does happen, we face a moment when we have to decide whether we really believe what we say we believe. Whether all these glorious promises in the Bible about eternity and life after death and, and salvation are really true, or whether they're just pretty words that are meant to dull the pain of our loss. Is sin really forgiven? Is the grave really not the end? Has God really destroyed death? Is the Bible really true? In the face of your loss, do you dare to believe that it's all true? Have the words made it their way off the page and into your heart? If it is true, if God has defeated death, if sin really is forgiven, if the grave really isn't the end, if all that stuff is true, if all these stories are true, if all the promises are real, then there's a way to tell. Specifically, there should be an empty tomb somewhere over there in the Middle East, just outside of Jerusalem. Gee, what do you know? Look, I don't know exactly where you are this morning, 
with regard to your faith in Jesus. It is quite possible there are a number of you here today. This is kind of a high attendance Sunday, so I understand a lot of people might be here today, and you're pretty familiar with the Bible maybe, or maybe not. Maybe you know a good deal of truth. Maybe, maybe you even have a pretty good mental understanding of the concept that Jesus died on the cross to, to take our punishment upon himself and to save sinners. You've got a pretty good handle on the theory, but that truth has never broken through in personal faith. You have, what you have is objective knowledge about Jesus, but you've never known the peace of being forgiven of your sins. You've never known the assurance of his personal love for you or the confidence that you will spend eternity in his presence. This morning, this morning, maybe he is sneaking up behind you on the road right now. Maybe his spirit is stirring your heart and you now know you now know, and you're not sure how you know, but you now know that, that his death on the cross was not just to save people in general or to save the human race, but it was to save you. And his victory over death is not just an occasion for us to have this general celebration of happiness and Easter, but it was, it was his victory over your sin and his victory over your death. You may have noticed that when, when Christ's resurrection became a reality for these two guys on the road, they did something about it. Did you notice that? They responded. What did they do? They turned around and went back to Jerusalem, where the action was. And I'll bet that their flight, their, their trip back to Jerusalem was a lot faster than their trip to Emmaus. Why keep walking to Emmaus when Jesus is the other direction? Will you respond? Will you respond to the whisper of his spirit this morning by turning to Jesus, receiving his free gift of salvation, and then pursuing him, going back to find him, pursuing him for the rest of the days of your life on earth? That's what it is. Because where Jesus is, that's where the action is. Now, for those of us who already know Jesus, probably most of us here. I want you to remember, these guys on the Emmaus Road, they're already disciples. They're already Jesus' disciples. They're not newbies. They've had some experience of Jesus, but they come into this moment at a low point in their faith when everything has fallen apart. And, and I know for most of us, there are those times when Jesus seems perhaps less real to us than at other times, when disappointment or pain or some recent setback or an unanswered prayer or whatever it is has clouded our faith and it's introduced a lot of doubt, maybe about his love for us, maybe about his power, maybe about whether he's really in control after all. Let me, let me just invite you, the, the place to start, if that's where you are this morning, is, I would say, is at the empty tomb, is at the place where Christ's work on the cross was certified to be 100% effective, where, where Jesus' cry of, it is finished, was proven true for you. Not just in general, but for you. God confirmed through the raising of his son that all of his promises were yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Because he lives, you really can face tomorrow. I know that's cliche. We've sung it so many times, but you know what? That doesn't make it any less true. It's very true. And you know, one of the other songs we sang this morning would never fly in Wes's apologetics class. 
where Wes, if you go to the Sunday school, and it'll be back open again next week, is teaching us you know, reasons to believe and how to give reasonable, logical answers for our faith that might convince some of the people around us that are skeptical. Think about it. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. You know what? That's not going to convince any skeptic of anything, is it? That's not what that's for. That's kind of subjective, isn't it? But you know what the funny thing is? That skeptic, on the day that skeptic becomes a former skeptic and actually surrenders to the love of Christ, the funny thing is, he's going to want to sing that song too. Because Christ will have come off the pages of Scripture and invaded his heart and taken up residence in his life. And he'll say, you ask me how I know he lives? Skeptical me? He lives within my heart. So let's close this morning with a prayer and then I'm going to ask you to sing that chorus. We'll stand and sing that chorus of He Lives one more time. Go ahead and stand now, that's fine.